Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is James Campion, who joins me to discuss his book, Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. Over the course of the book, James dives deeply into the song's origins, recording, visual presentation, impact and eventual influence. At the same time, looks at how the song tells us so much about John and Paul's relationship and the forthcoming trajectory of the Beatles. James Campion, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Joe. It is an absolute honour and pleasure to be on this programme in which I am a fan. That's incredibly kind of you to say, and it's, um, it's an honour and a privilege to have you here and for taking the time out to speak to us about your book, Take a Sad Song, which listeners will know already is about a certain Hey Jude. Now, there are, what, 213 Beatles songs? You could probably do a book on 50 of them. What was it about Hey Jude that led you to start this book? Well, as I mentioned in the, the introduction, uh, it, was, it was a childhood sense memory for me right there. The earliest melody I remember singing that didn't come from, say, a children's show or a Disney thing was na 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 and whenever i'd have this nightmares like it you know i guess i would have been five years old when the record came out i was about to be six in september of 68 that's what i used to sing to myself i don't know where i would have heard it joe i just did and it never left me always got chills when i heard it come up on the radio i can't you know a couple of interviews have asked me when i heard the song proper and that i don't have a distinct memory of but it's always been for me the most mystical most connecting emotional song for me. But then I did all this research on the song and I realized it's got what a history, what a connection psychologically, historically, sociology, all of it. And that's why I had all these professors. Uh, I pulled them in to help me understand what it is about this song that has knocked me out my whole life. So it's obviously an incredibly beloved Beatles song. Did you have any kind of trepidation about writing a whole book on this particular song? Absolutely. I have trepidations <laughs> about all of my projects. This one in particular, I know I've been asked that why one song, and it's a fair question. I was inspired by many, I think I'm the ninth or 10th author, but there's been many fine books written about White Christmas, Louie Louie, Cross Grell, Marcus's uh, Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan at the Crossroads just blew me away. My friend Alan Light's book about Hallelujah. So it was very intriguing for me to do it. My last book was on Warren Zevon's songs. And instead of doing a chronological, like an actual biography about Warren, I decided to write an essay for each song. And, and his life would sort of reveal itself in the writing. To take on one song was really kind of daunting. And I did have trepidations about it. But again, I did very little research at first that was, intrigued me. Later on, I did tons of research. This was my pandemic book. I worked from literally the world shut down in March I started in April and finished in April in 2021 when I handed in the manuscript. As you know, it takes like a year for a book to come out. So it seems like so long ago now. But mm. yeah, I, but I dove right in and, and it really revealed itself. It opened up to me. The song, Paul's Life, The Power of the Beatles, all of the Beatles songs, not just Hey Jude, really come through. I hope will come through in the book. So one of the early chapters of the book, it consists of you talking to, as you said, professors, musicians, writers about Hey Jude. Did you get like a common 
theme, a common response when you said those two words to an individual? Did they come back at you with a similar similar ideas or was it a really varied kind of spread of things? It was both. I mean, that's a silly answer, but it's true. It was both those things. There were quite a few people I found intriguing, especially songwriters from different generations and different genders, different disciplines and styles, would always say that the song has this payoff. There's a payoff. We all know it's coming. It pays off. The bridge pays off that that coda. The opening pays off the coda. So that's not why I came up with emotional currency. It was more what I was talking about earlier, about this idea that it keeps paying forward for me as, as as a young man and an older man now. Uh, but that was one thing that was pretty much a thread throughout. Many of the, the of my colleagues and now some of them friends have been on the show with you, like Tim Riley and Rob Sheffield, and they, they chimed in and they had some. I, the, the fact that Rob called it a radical, the most radical statement the Beatles ever did. This is a this is a band that was filled with radical statements. And the B side is revolution that he found Hey Jude even more pressing because the, the real story always was that Hey Jude was sort of the lesser, you know, it's kind of Paul just again throwing out flowery aphorisms while the world's on fire <laughs> and John's getting in the, the, the dirt being John, you know, with his little tongue in cheek. Uh, but I think quite a few Beatles scholars and Rob is the first guy to really point it out. He, he thinks that the length of the song, the style of the song, and just the idea that Paul is not coming at us with a grandiose statement like all you need is love. He's coming at a more centralized. I think I use the Gandhi quote of change comes from, from within or you, you have to be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm. That those are two things. You know, I, I was shocked and, and happy, happily shocked by some of the real interesting singular uh, observations. And of course, that that whole bit about the payoff. I, I don't think there was one songwriter that I interviewed that didn't say they know as structural songwriters exactly what the hell Paul's doing and he's doing it or better than anyone. I often, as you, as you know, if you're a listener, I find myself talking about the Beatles anthology film in these episodes more often than not. And in the episode of the anthology where Paul's asked about Hey Jude, he tells that story beautifully where he says, I was driving over to see Sin. Sin was about to break up with John. And he tells the story about changing the lyrics with when John's there, etc. So this idea that the genesis of this song comes from Paul writing a song to Julian, do you think that that's it, that that's, that's the, the kind of crux of, of the song? Or what else is going on in there when he's writing this song? The short answer is it has many levels and elements. The impetus, the inspiration, the spark, which I dedicate this a short chapter to, because that story must be told, right? And he's told it hundreds of times. And I know a lot of Beatle maniacs are tired of maybe of hearing it. So it had to be in the book for someone who has no you know, basic background history. But there are so many levels to that. Paul was, was classic. And I think that the Beatles in general, and great songwriters from that period, for taking one incident and making it about several things at once. I think the grand understanding of the book for me was that Paul does something that I've always found fascinating about art. It's painfully personal and it's spectacularly universal. Obviously, the not, I call the na-na-na part the um, unity portion and the opening comforting. Uh, almost everybody said it's really a, a song, a pep talk, not f- just for Julian, but Certainly for John and Paul, as childhood chums, both going through breakups, finding new loves, the loves of their lives, as both of them would stay with, with their significant others until the deaths of John and, and Linda. 
So you have found her, now go and get her. But also the idea of, you know, refrain from the pain of this breakup, Julian. And of course, the first thing was, hey, hey, Jules. But I think that was just a starting point. I know what you're asking, Joe. It's so true. Just a starting point for Paul, which makes sense because he used to make that drive out to write songs with John. So songs were in his head. Songs were always in Paul's head. <laughs> uh, and that goes, I mean, that's what all of his biographers told me. There isn't a way to separate it. And I got this wrong a couple of times. And that is, it was Peter Ames Carlin, who I also believe was on this program, who said, when Paul goes for the music metaphor, that's when he's he's going for the real story because everything is music to Paul. It was the way it got him over his mother's death at 14. It was the way it got him out of the malaise of his life hearing Elvis. It was the way that his life blossomed when he met John. It was the way that he put that band together that he absolutely adored that made it through Hamburg and, the, the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours at the cavern. It was everything to Paul. And he puts it in this song. And that's why I think also all the elements of the Beatles story and the Beatles musical powers can be found in the structure and everything, vocal arrangement, musicality, playing in Hey Jude. As we said, Julian is the basic kind of uh, mm -hmm. star, initial star of, of the song. And you do give him a little chapter in the book. I've got a bit of a, not quite an obsession, but it, it's approaching it. The children of the Beatles, in particular the sons of the Beatles, do throw up a few kind of interesting questions. Julian kind of exists maybe slightly separately from the other children of the Beatles because he was the firstborn. So he is, what, 15 years older than Sean to Danny um, to James, Paul's son. Being a son of the Beatles obviously going to be a tough gig. What did you find out or what did you feel about Julian's relationship with, with Hey Jude? Do you think it was an easy relationship? Because, I mean, it must be difficult to walk around your life and this song that's primarily written about you is coming out of supermarket speakers or in taxis or whatever. I've always wondered about that. I didn't come to that conclusion in this book because again, I didn't want to belabor that point, but Joe, you actually bring up a really good one because from what I understand, the story is that Julian didn't even know at the time. And maybe even Cynthia didn't know at the time that this song was specifically about, because I've always wondered and we'll never know. I mean, Paul doesn't really, he's very, he tells the story very well, but he's very cagey about it. And I doubt he would have started singing, Hey Jules. That seems like something you'd see in a movie, right? Mm. Uh, but you know, that, that he didn't know about it for years until he was an adult. And then, uh, as you know, he, he ended up um, secretly getting in auction the, uh, the studio notes for the song. So it must have meant something to him. I think it was Adam Duritz, my buddy from Counting Crows in the book that says, you know, and it really hit me. He's like, for years, Sean was kind of the real Lennon kid. And Julian was kind of left out there. And he became a pop star uh, after his father's death. It's that is the Beatles sons is a really good. That could be a book in itself. Yeah. Uh, but but I thought Paul going out and some of the, the, the Beatle writers and Beatle biographers said to me, and I agree that him driving out to to comfort Cynthia and Julian says more about Paul than it can about Julian. His empathy, this idea, as Rob Sheffield says, a 26 year old rock star who's on the top of the planet. I mean, he's, he's at his biggest power and he's just fallen in love. He's in the biggest band in the world. You know, he's could do anything that afternoon, but he, he spends it nice summer afternoon driving up there to comfort them. And he was the only person who could do it because John cut everybody out. Cynthia felt like she was cut out of the Beatle loop. John had moved on quickly. 
But it also says that, uh, and I think I quoted it in the book about Julian saying, I have all these pictures of me and Uncle Paul playing, but really nothing of me and dad. And then I'm reminded of that great story that I did put in the book that in 1973-74, when John was on his last weekend and he met up with Paul, I think in LA, and he runs up to him and gives him a hug and says, hugging is good. And Paul was taken aback by that, but then he understood it. You know, what kind of love could have John gotten? His parents just kind of left him out there to hang and then his father disappeared and then his mom dies. He's raised by his aunt Mimi. John did not have, I think, the, the ability, I'm going to play a junior psychologist here, to make to have that loving moment. But Paul did. And he, and he took it upon himself to go out there. And then he wrote one of the most beautiful songs, I think, in the history of pop music. That brings us nicely onto, onto my next question, which is about childhood, actually, because you do write a lot about childhood in the book, both of John and Paul. Most listeners will be aware of the basic kind of stories of their childhood that they obviously share this tragedy where they, they both lose their, their mothers. But apart from that, child, their childhoods are wildly different, which, as you say, is manifest in their kind of adult behaviour, certainly their behaviour, whilst they were in the Beatles. Do you think that their different childhoods affected their reaction to the song, to, in specifically in John's case? Yes, because, of course, again, famously, John thought the, book, the song was about him, and, and, and he was right. The song is about him. And the song's about Paul. The song's about this love affair that these two men have had since they were children. And they got out of what would have been drudgery lives, probably, or maybe ordinary, certainly, lives in Liverpool to become the biggest pop stars on the planet. Not just pop stars, but the biggest on the planet. And, and affect everything from comportment to fashion to haircuts to religion to styles of music. And that's all true. I mean, none of that's hyperbole. It's all true. And John and Paul did this together. And only John and Paul could know about it. And of course, George and Ringo. But John and Paul's a different animals as far as relationships are concerned. So yes, I mean, it's in this song. No question. And the one thing, Joe, and I don't know if you agreed with this, and I know I was, I was really going out on a limb. And then the more I wrote about it, the more I read about it, I started going back into the Beatles canon, as you mentioned, 200 plus songs. I really do hear... John and Paul both beseeching a woman's love to fill the hole of the death of their mothers. And I talk about this a lot. I mean, these some of the obvious ones is Julia and for Paul, let it be where they both kind of mention their mothers, but even something like, I want to hold your hand or she loves you or here, there and everywhere. You know, the first two songs they write are about this lost girl. John says, you know, in the song girl that's on um, rubber soul or, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, that's that magic girl from the sky is going to come and save me. And Yoko's that girl. So I think that's why I said earlier, all the Beatles songs seem to come much more alive to me because I really do truly think that after all my time and research and reading and interviews that it's the baseline of all of their, certainly their love songs and mm. also their search for something better, whether it was the Maharishi, whether it was fame, whether it was their relationship to Brian Epstein you know, all of these, these characters that come in and guide them because they didn't have that necessarily, especially John in their younger days. It's interesting you, you talk about them writing about their, their mothers. I think they write a lot about, it's amazing how often particularly female figures come into their songs. I mean, mm. obviously something like Anna Rigby. But I had, I don't know if you listened to the episode that I did with Ted Widmer, who wrote a piece for The New Yorker about Stuart Sutcliffe. And then we talked a bit about Babies in Black which is obviously about, uh, you know, it, it's a death song again, 
but is it about Astrid? Is it about another mystery? You know, you've got the song Girl, which is generally seen to be about Cynthia. It's amazing how often these kind of female protagonists crop up in the Beatles work, which doesn't hugely happen solo wise after the after the, the Beatles break up. I can't think of that many examples individually. Yeah, th- songs like Babies in Black, it, it, it's there's so many different meanings you can put into these songs. And as you say, the female protagonist is so much more common in the Beatles than in the Who or the Kinks or whatever. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Uh, this, is, this is something you, you could spend three podcasts on. For everything you said, because by the time they get to Hey Jude, which I think is the culmination of the Beatles' career, I'm not saying they didn't do brilliant stuff after. Of course they did. It's the last single they ever recorded as all four of them together specifically for a single. And remember at the beginning, they were a singles band and they were always a singles band. All the singles in specifically there in England and in the UK were separate that were not on all those albums as we know now were the proper canon. And so they, they come to Hey Jude and in a way it's an absolution song for John to leave Cynthia, whom Paul clearly loved. John met her only a couple of weeks after Paul and John first met. So he's known her since he's 15, 16 years old and he loved her as a friend. So, but he sees that John, and you could see it in the Get Back film. He's trying to explain to the rest of the Beatles. Don't you realize this guy? These are, they're super in love. Mm-hmm. You, that tells me more about their relationship when he's like, and Linda's sitting right by his side. And he's saying, the guy's crazy in love. Well, I know my pal. And if he's this gone, then he's getting exactly what he wants. And that's, so their connection of women's songs up until Hey Jude specifically to me mm-hmm. sort of lets it all go, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. now they've got that. They're going to marry these women within weeks of each other, a week of each other, I think, in, in, in spring of 69, which is mind blowing. And I think one of the biographers said, I think it might have been Howard Soons, that they quite literally married the same woman in a way. Both independent women coming from divorces who made their way in a man's world of photography uh, and journalism and art. Both of them lived in you know, Westchester, Scarsdale area. They both went to the New York underground. It's, it's insane. It's, mm. it's this whole thing. These two guys, I did want to say that. And also one thing that Rob Sheffield said, and I think it comes to fruition, where John and Paul are the only rock stars, to my knowledge, to have their wives having to be in the art forever. John always had to have Yoko as part, unless, you know, when Yoko threw, threw him out. Paul always claims he never spent more than like maybe two days the entire time without Linda. She was in every band, everything he did. So... Yeah, it is mind-blowing, the connections there. Rob, who said the most intimate relationship those guys had was each other. It was a musical relationship. And they had to replace each other with women who would do that with them. The Mm. idea of having, you know, Jerry Hall or Vanity or, you know what I mean, whatever you want to pick, Rockstar, they're not going to be on the sidelines, not with these two guys. So Mm. women, huge. Uh, You have found her. Now go and get it. Don't blow it. This is your big shot to get everything. So great. So let's talk a little bit about the the song itself. One of my favorite chapters of your book is the chapter that focuses on the kind of composition and the structure of the song. Tell us a little bit about what you what you found out. Is there anything in the song that you found specifically from a technical basis that gives any clues to this amazing long lasting appeal that Hey Jude has? Well, I love the fact, I don't know how much this translates. Well, to, to, I'll, I'll share two things with you, not to give too much of the book away and also mm. because I tend to go on. The first thing is that how steeped in classical music styling, Broadway or Tin Pan Alley, which Paul adored, as we know, and then later gospel 
real gospel underpinnings, certainly with the amen, plagal cadence at the end, na, 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 but also in some of the things that he does there in the bridge. And then, of course, the other one I had never known. And Walter Everett, the great Beatles scholar and musicologist, told me first. And then I saw it in one of his books afterwards because um, I got it after Walter and I spoke. And then I spoke to Tim Riley, his buddy, who they brilliant book called What Goes On, explaining a lot of the musicology of the Beatles songs. And they both said that there are specific things. Paul is taking a liturgical piece from 1917 to begin his melody. Ba, 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 ba. That's it. The rest of it is all Paul taking it into that pop realm that he knows so well. But those mm. first notes was discovered by a woman. It was great. I was able to send Joe. I was able to send the woman, Mary Nixon, the book, who discovered it while singing it in a choir going, hey, I, I think I just found Hey Jude. Can you imagine being in the room for that one? I, I forget what year it was. It was decades later. And then, of course, the bridge part, which uh, Walter Everett, and again, I won't give it away. I want people to read the book, certainly, but that it's based on, and when I heard it, you can't unhear it, an old song that Paul and John adored uh, from the Drifters. So to know that there's echoes of things, because the Beatles did it, sort of Dylan, sort of the Stones, everybody does it, right? You steal from the best, not steal, but you know what I mean? It's, the, it's, it's an idea that it's out there as part, and you take it, and then for a musicologist to take me through it with the piano on Zoom and say, okay, you see what Paul is doing here? He's changing to that one part. He could have gone here. But by going here, he makes you feel uneasy for a moment. Then he brings you back that journey. And, and as someone who is not a musicologist, and I can fake my way through a little guitar and drums, I could tell you that's when a hair comes up on the back of your neck and you realize Paul is a master craftsman. But the one thing that Paul always says, and I make joke about it in that chapter, is magic, 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 magic. I wrote it on the magic piano, uh, the magic take. Uh, it was magic, you know, finding Elvis, finding John. He's not wrong. Mm. So there's a lot of that great balance of combination of pure instinct by Paul and a real manipulative craftsman who knows how to bring a tear to your eye or bring a smile to your face. He just does. The guy's a pro. So Hey Jude's quite unique in the sense that, again, most dishes will know there's a film crew in the studio to film them rehearsing and, and recording. Um, over the course of a, a day or so. Uh, I mean, just to focus on on partly on that, but also on the kind of recording of the song itself, was there anything that, that stood out to you about the recording of Hey Jude that, that kind of found its way into the book? I never knew this. I, maybe I read it in Norman's book when I was a kid, or perhaps it might have been in the Spitz book, uh, but no idea that the very first take they did of it is the record, is what you hear. I, I mean, that, that is magical. And the whole thing, I mean, the 19 times singing Nana, I mean, the whole, they're rolling. I think, I forget who it was that said it, but the, you know, the idea of stopping the Beatles on a, on a vamp, on a jam like that is, was just sacrilege. So they just kept on going. As Paul says, we're just having too much fun. And the Beatles are genuinely having fun. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, that film uh, crew, uh, Joe, that came and filmed them rehearsing it in uh, Abbey Road just a couple of days earlier in late July of 68. And I watched that film over and over again, and it's mesmerizing. It's on YouTube. Mm. And it's just them figuring it out. Here are the Beatles figuring it out, singing Nana for the first time. And big smile on Ringo's face and John's really playing it up. And it's just really wonderful. Gives me chills. But um, you see them working it out. And of course, I'm so glad that Peter Jackson talked about the primacy of Hey Jude in the entire Get Back sessions in the film, because 
yes, it was that film crew that Paul took looked at it and said, wait, this is cool. This is us making music. This is what we do best. We can't go on the road. We don't want to tour. Let's have let's invite people in. So there's your get back. And then, of course, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who I interviewed for the book, took me through the whole making of that wonderful video and about how much that also influenced the idea that the Beatles were in in front of an audience and people were there. And Michael said, you could see it on their faces. They were getting applause again. They were getting adoration again. They were looking at each other going. And I think it was Tim Riley who said, if you look at the Beatles on the roof, that's the Beatles doing Hey Jude in that film. You could see that there's a different performance level when they get on the roof. It's a thing that happens when the four of them, it's a kinetic energy, an incredible dynamic that they have. And you see that in that film. And, and Michael Lindsay Hogg was there and he said, I'm telling you right now, those guys, that changed those guys. And he must know because they reached out to him and said, can you please direct a film based on us making songs for this Get Back project, which by the way, was supposed to end with what? A show with an audience. So they, they didn't know what it was going to be. It was supposed to be a TV show. They wanted to recreate that. So that Peter Jackson ended that whole little Beatle bio thing that he puts at the beginning of that brilliant series that we all loved, mm-hmm. put a smile on my face because I already sent in the manuscript. So I said, wow, look at this kind of vindicating my craziness of writing about one song. It catapulted the final chapter of the Beatles, the writing, recording, promoting, and success of Hey Jude. It is the very, the very thing that is the beginning of the, not the end in a bad way, but that last yeah. run. And people always ask me, let it be Hey Jude, kind of the same thing. No, it's not. Okay, it's a ballad and Paul is singing it and playing on a piano. That's where it ends. Because let it be comes out when the Beatles are done and people are blaming Paul. And Hey Jude, they're still a powerful, powerful unit. And it brought a lot of people back because you had the Magical Mystery Tour, the death of of their manager, the white album is in the middle and they're not talking as much. They're arguing, you know, Jeff Emmerich's leaving, you know, Martin's leaving the studio, Ringo quits. Yeah. And they come back together to make this magic. And it, it is, and it does represent to me the, the final, final leg of this great story of the Beatles. Yeah. I think um, just to dwell a little bit longer on the, the promo film, the video for yeah. Hey Jude, which I watched again about two or three days ago. Like most listeners, again, we've all watched it countless times. Again, it was in the anthology. That was probably the first time that I saw it. And they beautifully kind of layer in those interviews with the three of them right at the end of the video in the anthology where George says everything was going up and up and up and up. And you can it takes you along with it. Um, but that film is remarkable because that idea of the audience being there and it's mainly younger people, but they're all different backgrounds, etc. Why do you think that film is so effective at kind of demonstrating Hey Jude? Because essentially, it's just four people and a disparate audience. What do you think is the, if you've got any clues from Michael, what do you think is the kind of secret to the success of that particular film? Well, I'll just say right off the bat, you nailed a couple of them. But for me, it's four of the most dynamic human beings on the planet at the time. The Beatles together are a bomb going off. It's a creative, incredible, charismatic explosion. So there. And what Michael Lindsay Hogg did brilliantly is he put them practically sitting on top of each other. I mean, that's as tight and as close as the Beatles that we've seen the Beatles or the people in 1968, the boomers, had seen the Beatles in how long since they left that stage in San Francisco? And, and only a few people, not, well, I'm sure there are thousands there, but I'm saying not everybody was privy to that. Everybody was privy to this film. They were sitting at home on the Smothers Brothers show or the David Frost show in UK, and they were seeing this. The four lads from Liverpool, the four-headed monster, as Mick Jagger said. And instead of 
you know, spread out somewhere. They're like in that little conclave, like the film we were talking about earlier of them, of them uh, rehearsing or the way they were in Get Back, like this little circle of, um, so that's brilliant. And then the fact that it starts off on Paul alone because it's his ballad and he's looking right into the camera. So I, I said an entire chapter on 1968, everything that happened. I'm not going to go over it, but assassinations, Vietnam War, it's Czechoslovakian invasion by Russia, riots in London, riots in Dublin and, and Paris. It's nuts. And here comes Paul just looking right into the TV where everybody saw all these things over these last few months. And he's just singing his ballad of take it easy. It's going to be OK. It's all within you. You can get through this. Just when the door opens to be vulnerable and let love and let caring and empathy in, please just do it. And then it cuts beautifully to George and John sort of from the floor up and their heads are almost haloed uh, with lights. I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but that's exactly. And, you know, when I talked to Michael Lindsay Hogg, he said when he sat with Paul to talk about it, he said, I love you guys. You're the best. But I, I can't film four and a half minutes. No, no, no. I just can't do it. So Paul said, like, what do you got? What do you got? And he's like, well, why don't we get the world to sing it? And that's changed everything. And that part you say where they all flood in, whether they're older, younger, hippie girl, you know, a guy in a turban, old guy with a pint. It's all there. And it's all coming in. So the Beatles are, in essence, in a very, very visual, illuminating way, creating that unity. I, I think you cannot separate in as much as it was that way in the 80s when MTV blew up and you had to make a visual representation of your song, even if sometimes a lot of people will argue, and I might be one of those people, that it takes away the imagination. I don't want to think about girls dancing on a boat when I think of this song. I have my own thought, but I don't know if a video captures exactly what Paul was trying to say in that song. He starts off by himself, quietly telling you something. The Beatles are backing him up like the good friends that they are and wonderful musicians that they are. And then the world is invited in because that's what the Beatles did. They invited the whole world. in. And George always capped. I know he's being snide in his Liverpoolian way. But when he said, we gave people an excuse to go crazy and they went crazy <laughs> is kind of sweet. And I've always believed that about the Beatles. And that's why I think even a line like let it out and let it in. I titled the chapter my brief history of the Beatles that because what did the Beatles do? They let out this joy after the Kennedy assassination here in America specifically. And they let Beatlemania, as, as much as they could, it almost you know, killed them, but they let it all in. And it was a great give and take, which I think is the essence of art. Mm. To me, art's always been, I make a painting, I read a poem, write a book, I write a song, and then you smile, cry, laugh, get frightened if it's a horror movie. And I think Hey Jude does that. And but the fact that the Beatles were a visual band, and this is a visual representation of one song, it's a home run on every level, Joe. I really do. And I told, I told Michael, and he was great to me, and he told me all the ins and outs of it. It was probably my favorite chapter to write because then I said, this is the culmination of the, of the whole thing, isn't it? So we're talking now with a certain Atlantic Ocean in between us, and I'm always interested in the difference of perception of the Beatles and different elements and part of the Beatles from a UK perspective and a US perspective not at all to downplay anyone that's listening that's not in those two countries by the way but that's that's always an interesting the two nations divided by a common language and all that kind of stuff um did you find out did you get an, like an idea of how Hey Jude was perceived in the UK as opposed to the US was there a lot of differences going on oh massive differences that's always been the case. You know, this is a giant country 
we're like seven countries here. And it's mm. becoming more and more that case in this very bipolar world we live in now, not only politically, but gender and race and uh, generations certainly have always had that. But America, oof, and in 1968, boy, that was a rough year. And it was, and, and, and a couple of the scholars and a couple of the sociologists said, you know, this, th- th- there was a big difference. I mean, the one, one thing that blew my, you know, my head off when I started the book was I didn't realize that Hey Jude's the biggest hit, biggest Beatles hit in America. It's not even close. Huge. Nine weeks at number one, 19 weeks on the charts, song of the year, by far, billboard, whole nine yards. Should have won the Grammy, although, you know, I'll tip my hat to uh, Mrs. Robinson because I'm a big fan of the graduates. So. Kind of forgive that. I'm not a little green apples. I don't know. But anyway, the whole point is America, totally different animal because it's so many different Americas. And the Beatles did it in 64 and then continued to because moms and dads like the Beatles, unlike the Stones or the Kings or the Who. There's that generational, but also that big hug that the Beatles had here in America. And they wanted to conquer America. And the fact that these American women, which they write about, he, Paul writes about in this book, and that they're going, or in this song, and that they're going through he and John. So many things are very American. I think it's key in England also, because I think the Beatles didn't get as much of a butt kicking for Magical Mystery Tour here. They didn't get that much of a uh, you know backlash after the situation that happened in the Philippines. They did with the whole bigger than Jesus thing, but that's understandable, the South and the Bible Belt and that kind of thing. But I, I always felt that the you mentioned it in one of your earlier interviews that how much harder England was on the Beatles, a little mm. tougher on them and the solo Beatles even more so. So I think there was real big differences. And the other thing about, take, you know, about uh, Hey Jude is that it was also the biggest global hit. So it really had a global feel. But there's something about na 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 crossing all boundaries. You know, I love that footage of him playing it at the Kremlin. That, that's a long way to say that America and England are very different, but so are the other countries. But I think the unifying aspect of it is the Beatles did such a great job of not dropping the ball, of noticing their power, uh, their influence over a lot of people. They didn't take it for granted. And Paul says, I quote him later in the book when he says, I'm so glad when I look back and I realize how positive our songs were. That makes me feel so good. So when I'm dead and gone, I know those songs will be left behind and somebody will get a kick out of them. Um, as we kind of move toward the conclusion, James, I think it's interesting to talk a little bit about the kind of history of Hey Jude after the Beatles. And it, it sort of becomes a Paul McCartney song uh, from, from 1970, which is understandable and natural more than a, a Beatles song. But something that I, I was thinking about before I read the book was that this song wasn't played live for 21 years up until the Flowers in the Dirt tour, which I think I'm right in saying you went, did you see yes. Paul on that tour? Yes, I did, yeah. Um, so two kind of questions around that. Why do you think he never did this song live? I mean, he did that huge 76 Wings tour that would have been right for that. Then he doesn't play in 79 when he does the UK tour with the last Wings, or he does do Let It Be then. Why do you think he, did, he kind of kept it in reserve for nearly 20 years? I just think it's sacrosanct. And I think I've heard Paul say many times it scared the hell out of him mm. to go to some of those songs. They're just sacred to him. And they mean everything. And to me, Hey Jude, you're right, it's kind of become Paul's signature sing-along song for all of his solo tours since 89. And he, and he can't not do it. It's almost like, I think somebody said in my book, and he's right, it's almost like when he, Paul wrote it, he wrote it for a live audience. So it's a real sing-along song. But I will say, Joe, when I was in Madison Square Garden for that show, the whole time I was really enjoying Paul McCartney because I grew up with Paul McCartney and Wings, you know, in the 70s. And the Beatles and Paul McCartney and Wings were kind of parallel from my childhood. But it's the first time when he played Hey Jude and everyone was singing along that it dawned on me 
I'm in the room with the beetle. It's almost like it's channeling in a very spiritual, in a very weird, weird way. It does channel the emotional impact of the Beatles, that song, more than any other song. Like, you know, I saw her standing there or Day Tripper or wherever the heck he's playing now. Drive my car, he's done, right? He's, but none of those really resonated with me the way that did of like, ooh, I'm in the presence of something special here. It's as if Abraham Lincoln showed up in the middle of like some lecture about the Civil War or something. You know, it, 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 he just became Paul the Beatle. And I forgot there was a band there and I could just see John there. And, and when Paul says he sings that line, the movement you need is on uh, your shoulder and John wouldn't let him take it out. And he says, every time I sing that line, I think of John. I can't not say, I mean, that to me, and that's why I love uh, the cover that was designed by my friend, Roberto Tatis. When I found that photograph and then he did a painted re resonance, I'm picturing Paul closing his eyes for a moment in the middle of Hey Jude and going, John, thank you. We did some great stuff together. It gets me choked up even thinking about it. And, and that's what this song does for me. It does have emotional resonances. So when he plays it live, the Beatles show up. I, and this song more than any other. Granted, I spent the whole book on it. I spent the year of my life on it. So it's easy for me to say. But I really do believe it. Hey Jude Live is a... Uh... Is certain experience. I first saw him 2003 um, and I went with my wife, then girlfriend, not a believer, shall we say, but very kindly came along with me. And obviously I was there loving every last second of it. And I just, as we got to Haiti, I just looked to my left. By this point, she, unbeknownst to me, stood up and was singing the Na Na Na's uh, at a throat shredding volume. And I thought, we've got you. We've got you. Paul has done it again. We've, we've, we've converted another one. It, absolutely that's that's the power of hey jude um so by the time you finish this book did your relationship with hey jude the song kind of change can you still listen to it can you put it on in 10 minutes and listen to it how did writing the book kind of change your relationship with the song and with paul maybe that's a great question now you're the first person to ask me that it's funny i just had a uh, we're recording this at the memorial day weekend here in the states and i uh, just had family uh leave to go home they were here for a few days and we played it a couple of times. They're all getting a kick out of it because I got this book out on it and, and we're singing it. We're playing on the acoustic guitar and singing it. So no, it's still there and it's great. I, I, I'm so glad as again, I could bring a bunch of people in to dig this song that I love so much. And I did want to say real quick, that's funny that you mentioned that story because I put that story, a short story. One of the, the inspirations for doing the book was I saw the James Corden show in which he's driving around with Paul in Liverpool. And at the end, he plays in the pub and then they're all singing uh, you know, Hey Jude, and the room's going nuts. And there's one woman crying. She's crying these tears of joy or just, just release. And I start thinking, what, is, what, what has that woman gone through? What does this song mean to her? Was the song her dad sang to her and he passed? Was it the first song she had a kiss to? Is it just like she's from Liverpool and Paul's just breaking her heart? And I look over to my wife and she's crying. And my wife is not a huge Beatle fan. So again, like you. So I found it funny. But at, at the end of the day, for me, the other day I was driving, Joe, and I, I, I came on in a mix. I didn't even choose it on my Spotify. And I, I had this big smile on my face. So I was like, ah, in some small scintilla of a way, I finally am connected to something that has been. And that's why I would love for Paul to read the book, because it would be a joyous experience for me. It's, it's a love letter to this song that has given me so much joy over my, uh, my life and all the Beatles songs. I think at the end of my acknowledgments, I say thank you, Paul, for the song and, and thank you, the Beatles, for all the songs, because that's all we as Beatles fans would love is to just wish them all thank you for giving us so many years of joy. So at the end of the day, I'll never get sick of it. 
Uh, it was the last song I heard before my father passed in 2019, before I embarked on it, which was also a weird sort of universe telling me something about it. And it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure, Joe, there must be a Beatles song that does that to you more than any others. Maybe not. Is there one? And can, can we, can I get the host to share? That of course. Song? Uh, probably We Can Work It Out for me. Because We Can Work It Out was on one of my early Beatle cassettes, which I got in the mid 90s, was the Red Album. And of course, We Can Work Out is on the Red Album. And it was, I remember, it's the first time I really realized that John Lennon, who was one thing in my mind, and Paul McCartney was another thing in my mind. And I realized they're in the same band. That, that's John Lennon. That's like, that's like, you know, that's like Elton John and Rod Stewart being in a band, but times a million, no offense, Elton or Rod, but there's, there's something I just realized they're in the same band and they're writing this song and they're singing together. And you know, the, the way the voices me- meld together on there's no time for fussing and fighting. I mean, yeah, we can work it out and it's, it's always there. Those voices will always be together. And yeah, Thank the Lord for the Beatles, James. What can I say? Yeah, and I would say that Paul said recently, which really gave me chills, he's like, you know, I realized even years after John died, I was in a band with John Lennon. <laughs> and it is true. He was in a band with John Lennon, and John Lennon was in a band with Paul McCartney. And as you said, uh, you know, we're all, all better for it. And also, for the record, no pun intended, the Red Album was also my first. And it was funny because I asked my parents, it was 73, it first came out, right? So I think I was my first Beatle album. And I asked my parents for the Blue Album. And I think because Hey Jude was on it also because I, I was like, my first love of the Beatles was the later stuff. The earliest stuff seemed corny to me when I was younger, but that's the exact that my parents lucked into, they backed into in many ways, my true education of the Beatles. Cause I got to first song, side one, love me do. Here we go. Here comes the story. And, and the fact that I was able, even though he didn't chime in in the book, Grail Marcus and I became pen pals uh, or I guess email pals during this and, and Grail's, essay about the Beatles was the first thing I ever read about them. That's in the illustrated history of rock and roll, the Rolling Stone illustrated history of rock and roll. It came out, I think in late seventies. So those two things, you know, it all comes to coalesces. Again, I use that word. When you work on the Beatles, you see the threads. They're very connected. John's childhood to Paul's childhood, to George's childhood, the fact that they were friends and they used to, George would follow him around. And the fact that Ringo was the perfect person to make that magic circle as uh, Mr. McKinney says. And, and about how Paul puts us all into this song, and that they're all behind it. It's a true, and I think it was Rob Sheffield saying it's a drummer song, it's a band song. Don't ever forget that. It's Paul's solo moment, it's his way of expressing himself. But this band is just, I think I call it, Hey Jude is perfect enough. But then when you place it on the steeple that the Beatles erected, now you're talking about just something that's eternal, really a classic. And um, I, I swear, sometimes I listen to myself say these things. And I think, get, get over yourself, Campy, and it's a song. But then I say, hell, it's Hey Jude. What a great way to finish. Hell, it's Hey Jude. James, just thanks so much for, for your time uh, and for writing the book. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs>